Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, entitled, Should EPA Be Another E in the ABCs of CBD Risk Prevention? Straight talk from the experts is provided by Medtelligence. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. Hi, welcome to this symposium entitled, Should EPA Be Another E in the ABCDs for CVD Risk Prevention? Straight talk from the experts. I'm Dr. Erin Mikos. I'm the Director of Women's Cardiovascular Health and the Associate Director of Preventive Cardiology at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. My name is, again, Dr. James Underberg. I'm an internist and clinical lipidologist and a clinical assistant professor of medicine at the NYU Grossman School of Medicine and the NYU Langone Center for the Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease. I'm also the director of the Bellevue Hospital Lipid Clinic in New York City. And again, the title of this section is called New Pathways to Manage High Risk in ASCBD. So what we see in this first slide is that despite decreasing ASCVD event rates with statin monotherapy and PCSK9 inhibitors, all targeting LDL cholesterol, substantial cardiovascular risk remains. On the left, a variety of statin trials remind us that despite substantial cardiovascular risk reduction on statin, people continue to have events. And if you look on the right, looking at residual risk after statin therapy and PCSK9 inhibitors, while there is a statistically significant reduction, the hazard ratio here of 0.085, we still see in the red hash a significant number of cardiovascular events continuing to occur. So we're reducing event rates, but we certainly haven't eliminated cardiovascular event rates. So when we think about classification of fasting triglyceride levels, this is based on both the 2011 AHA guidance and the 2014 National Lipid Association guidance, um, again, fasting triglycerides optimally should be less than 100. We often think of 150 as normal, but, but that's really kind of the mean or the average. And, and above 150 to 199 would be borderline high, 200 to 499 would be high, and above 500 would be considered very high. And this is one of my favorite trials to talk about. Uh, Mike Miller, a colleague of ours, was the the principal investigator on this post hoc analysis of something called the Prove It Timmy 22 trial, specifically looking in this case at patients on high dose statin therapy whose LDL cholesterol was less than 70 milligrams per deciliter. Breaking down the patients whose triglycerides were then greater than or equal to 150 milligrams per deciliter versus those whose triglycerides were less than 150 milligrams per deciliter. And you can see here. Uh, very nicely illustrated, there was a 41% increase in cardiovascular risk in those patients who had mild hypertriglyceridemia, in this case, greater than 150 milligrams per deciliter. And I think just as important um, is this next slide, which, which looks at the increase in cardiovascular events, or in here, predicted cardiovascular risk as triglycerides go up. And I think what, what, what is so informative about this, this, this graphic is that risk seems to actually start to plateau if we start to get up towards the 200 range, and that the steepest part of the curve is actually at the lower end of the triglyceride range, and that somewhere between 100 and 200 
that's where we really need to be concerned. These are the patients where cardiovascular risk climbs rather precipitously with relatively small changes in triglycerides, even within ranges that one might consider, quote, normal. And when we look at kind of the compendium of outcome data, there is a lack of decreased cardiovascular disease events with omega-3 due in many cases to either lower doses used in these clinical trials, potentially the use of dietary supplements, or potentially the the presence of DHA, or maybe the lack of focus on patients with hypertriglyceridemia. And so if we look at studies here on the left, you can see that a variety of dietary supplements um, and then supplements done with relatively low-dose combinations of EPA and DHA have not shown any significant benefit when it comes to type of cardiovascular event. The lone outlier here is the JELUS trial, um, and the JELUS trial was done with pure EPA at moderate dose, um, almost two grams a day. Um, Two other studies done more recently, the VITAL and ASCEND trial, done with combination of EPA and DHA, but at low dose, no cardiovascular benefit. And then most recently, the REDUCA trial, high-dose prescription-grade EPA, four grams a day. So similar but different to the JELUS trial, did show a reduction in cardiovascular event rates. So what do we know about the JELUS trial? The JELUS trial was done in in Japan, and it was a group of both primary and secondary prevention patients on statins, uh, 20 milligrams of pravastatin or 10 milligrams of simvastatin, and then randomized to EPA at 1.8 grams a day versus placebo. And you can see that for the overall cohort, there was a reduction in cumulative incidence of coronary events of about 19%. Uh, Specifically, if you look at patients in the elevated triglyceride group, you see there a much greater benefit, about a 53% reduction in um, the incidence of coronary events. And so again, both in the overall cohort, but in the subgroup of those with high triglycerides, um, significant benefit. So uh, EPA comes from something called icosapenethyl or IPE. Icosapenethyl is then acted on by a lipase. Um, and an ethyl group is cleave, and that leaves us with icosapentaenoic acid, or EPA, that then finds its way in um, to the chylomicron, where it's re-esterified and transported to the rest of the body. And EPA um, has been studied in the REDUCA trial. The REDUCA trial looked at four grams a day of icosapentaenoic versus placebo in two groups of patients, those with established cardiovascular disease on statin, or those with diabetes and multiple risk factors on statins. And what you see here in the overall cohort, the primary endpoint um, showed a significant reduction, um, the hazard ratio of 0.75, and the key secondary endpoint on the right of cardiovascular death, MI, and stroke showed a reduction with a hazard ratio of 0.74. And the p-values for these go all the way out, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 1, and 0000006, rather significant and impressive with regards to these patients. So so again, both in a primary and secondary prevention, high-risk cohorts, um, on statins, adding EPA in these trials um, showed a reduction in cardiovascular events. If you look at pre-specified hierarchical testing, um, you see that um, the primary composite and key secondary endpoints cardiovascular death or non-fatal myocardial infarction going all the way down to total mortality, non-fatal MI, or non-fatal stroke all showed benefit. 
And only when they came to total mortality did that actually cross over unity. And so again, rather um, impressive data looking at the pre-specified endpoints. Total events also were reduced. If you look at total events for every 1,000 patients on icosapet ethyl for five years, you see here CV death, fatal or non-fatal MI, um, fatal or non-fatal stroke, revascularization, hospitalization, and the primary composite endpoint all showed benefit. Um, furthermore, there was enhanced benefit in mixed dyslipidemia, just like we saw in Jealous, um, those with higher triglycerides, and in this case, low HDL. Uh, seem to have incremental benefit. What's interesting is that the decrease in cardiovascular event rates with IPE did not vary by baseline triglyceride levels. And what's more interesting is that on-treatment triglycerides did not alter cardiovascular event rates either. And so while this is a triglyceride-lowering agent, and while you had to have elevated triglycerides to get into this trial, you had to have triglycerides greater than initially 150 and then 135, um, there didn't seem to be a benefit depending on what your triglyceride level was. So, so some non-triglyceride-based benefit of, of the intervention in reducing. You can see the changes in a variety of different biomarkers, and specifically the one that seems to best predict um, how people do, as I mentioned earlier, is that on-treatment EPA level. And when we look at the primary endpoint by on-treatment serum EPA in Jealous, and we see the median level of about, you know, be somewhere between 100 and 150, um, that was achieved in the trial. That's where the, the continued incremental benefit with regards to cardiovascular event rate seems to, to accrue. So what have we learned from the omega-3 trials? Well, what we've learned is, is supplements and low-dose EPA-DHA combination does not reduce cardiovascular disease risk. Intermediate-dose EPA and DHA does not reduce cardiovascular disease risk. High-dose EPA and DHA does not reduce cardiovascular disease risk. Intermediate-dose EPA only, jealous or high-dose EPA from reduce it, in both cases does reduce cardiovascular disease risk. So, so where are we now in our paradigm? Um, we know that statin therapy is important. It, it, it's the, it's the, the starting point of cardiovascular risk reduction, and that adding azetamibe is certainly reasonable. And then if you follow an LDL-lowering pathway, um, subsequently adding PCSK9 inhibitors, alirocumab or evolocumab are also reasonable um, with regards to, to achieving further ASCVD event rate reduction in high-risk patients. But there is an alternative pathway, which does not have to be exclusive or mutually exclusive from the LDL-lowering pathway, and that is the addition of icosapen ethyl on top of optimized statin therapy in patients with stable ASCVD or diabetes and more than one risk factor whose triglyceride levels are greater than or equal to 150 milligrams per deciliter. So at this point, I will hand things back over to Dr. Wang, who will be speaking to us now about differential biologic effects of omega-3 fatty acids. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Underberg, for the great overview of the clinical trial evidence of omega-3s for reducing cardiovascular risk. So what I'm going to try to do in this segment here is to um, discuss some of the 
different effects um, between uh, some of these omega-3 fatty acids that might help explain some of the results that were discussed. This diagram nicely contrasts the effects of EPA and DHA on the cell membrane. And one can see that EPA preserves membrane structure and, and, and tends to inhibit lipid oxidation and related cholesterol crystal transformation. DHA, however, tends to increase membrane fluidity, promoting disorganization of the cell membrane and tends to have reduced antioxidant activity compared to EPA due to its lipid disordering effects. Resolvins are derived from omega-3 fatty acids and are synthesized during the initial phases of the acute inflammatory response, and they tend to promote the resolution of inflammation. EPA generates what are called E-series resolvents. DHA generates D-series resolvents. We've discussed how EPA can inhibit oxidation of apple B containing lipoproteins, and I'm going to show you more data on that in a minute. And EPA also reduces cell membrane fluidity, um, tending to inhibit the development of cholesterol crystals, whereas the opposite seems to be true with DHA. So this slide nicely contrasts the effects of EPA and DHA on inhibiting oxidation of different ApoB containing particles, namely small dense LDL, LDL, and VLDL. One can see that EPA inhibits oxidation for for at least up to four hours for all three of these, whereas in the case of DHA, shown in blue, you can see that it only inhibits oxidation for the first hour or so, and then the effect is greatly diminished afterwards. Here we see the effects on inflammatory levels of C-reactive protein. We know that statins and as well as EPA individually lower C-reactive protein by moderate amounts, and the combination of the two show even greater reductions in CRP. There are also effects uh, seen most notably from the combination of azitamide and statin, as well as uh, vampidolic acid. What are some of the effects on, on atherosclerosis and its mechanisms from EPA? Well, EPA tends to increase endothelial function and nitric oxide bioavail bioavailability. It also increases the EPA acridonic acid ratio, as, as well as increases this, this anti-inflammatory cytokine IL-10. It increases fibrous cap thickness, lumen diameter, as well as plaque stability, whereas it decreases, as we discussed earlier, cholesterol crystalline domains, oxidized LDL, remnant lipoproteins, uh, macrophages, a host of inflammatory factors, as was mentioned earlier, as well as different plaque characteristics, such as plaque volume 
arterial stiffness, plaque vulnerability, thrombosis, and platelet activation. And remember that dietary supplements have no or minimal FDA oversight, and there are no over-the-counter omega-3 products that are FDA regulated, but non-prescription. So we can't recommend dietary supplement fish oils to treat diseases, despite the fact that many health claims are made, they are not backed up by solid clinical trial data, as we showed for icosapentethyl. Many adults take fish oil supplements. One can see here in this case of a leading U.S. fish oil dietary supplement that it contains huge amounts. More than a third of the content is saturated fat. So why on earth would we want to give our patients such a supplement that contained large amounts of saturated fat? Omega-3 fatty acids are oftentimes the content is overstated, and there are also many times different contaminants, even pesticides and PCBs. One would have to take many capsules of a um, EPA DHA dietary supplement or pro-oil dietary supplement to get that recommended four gram a day dose of EPA from four capsules of pure icosapentethyl. So we've discussed how dietary supplement fish oil is not useful for ASCVD prevention. Um, there are no clinical trial data that prove its efficacy in reducing CVD events. In addition, remember these are not regulated by the FDA and the content and purity is oftentimes in great question. So in summary, we've discussed how there are distinct differences between marine omega-3 fatty acids, uh, particularly EPA and DHA. We've discussed how membrane stabilization and fluidity are different, how different resolvents are engaged, how effects on oxidized lipoproteins are different, as well as how effects on on inflammation on certain biomarkers, such as CRP, are also different. Dietary supplements, while commonly used, do not have the evidence for ASCVD reduction, as was shown with icosapentethyl. So now it's a pleasure for me to turn this back to Dr. Mikos, who will discuss with us practical considerations to manage ASCVD risk. Great. Thank you, Nathan. So as you heard, I'm going to discuss in this section about practical considerations to manage ASCVD risk. Really, the only uh, drug as an adjunct to statins that uh, influenced triglycerides and have cardiovascular outcome reduction was icosapentethyl. And that's why the FDA updated their label indication. So originally, icosapentethyl was uh, labeled in 2012 as an adjunct to diet to reduce triglyceride levels. But after the publication of the Reduce It trial uh, in December 2019, this was updated that icosapentethyl has a, a label to be used as an adjunct to maximally tolerated statin to reduce the risk of major adverse cardiovascular events. 
among patients who have elevated triglycerides above 150 and who have either established cardiovascular disease or have diabetes and two or more uh, additional risk factors. And so this has been uptaked in five major guidelines from the Diabetes Association, several cardiology associations, the National Lipid Association, endocrinology societies, really following along with the reduced eligibility criteria that in patients with ASCVD and diabetes and risk factors who have triglycerides 135 to 499, uh, you should be considering uh, adding icosapent ethyl to your statin to reduce their cardiovascular risk. Now, I will mention that although these four guidelines all include triglycerides 135 to 500, the FDA label does say uh, triglycerides above 150, and that there is some differences among the guidelines. Uh, some specify you have to be on a maximally tolerated statin. Um, others just mentioned having your LDL controlled. Now, um, there is some uh, safety data that you should at least consider with icosapent ethyl. It's usually, it's overall a very safe medication, but with all of the omega-3 trials, whether it be reduced strength, amemi, we do see uh, this slight increased risk with uh, atrial fibrillation using uh, EPA. And so, uh, Notably, despite this increased risk of atrial fibrillation, I think it's important to highlight that there was no associated increased risk of stroke. That's what we're really worried about in AFib is increased risk of stroke, and that wasn't seen. In fact, actually, total stroke was reduced with icosapent ethyl. Other things to note in patients, if they truly have a fish allergy, icosapent ethyl is marine-based, and so this probably wouldn't be appropriate in patients who are allergic to fish. And then icosapent ethyl has a mild uh, anticoagulant effect. That's probably one of the mechanisms why, how it reduces cardiovascular risk. But when used and combined with other anticoagulants like warfarin or DOAX or antiplatelet therapy like aspirin or clopidogrel, there could be a slight increased risk of bleeding. Now, fortunately, it's getting easier to get uh, insurance approval for most of these ASCVD medications. I mean, statins are all generic, so those should be easy to use. Uh, and most other drugs are on formularies. Uh, most drugs are covered by insurance, but sometimes there's a little bit hurdles. Um, PCSK9 inhibitors are getting a little bit uh, easier uh, to get approved. Sometimes I run into initial um, setbacks with icosapent ethyl, but it's important to keep uh, being persistent. You know, what we do here at Hopkins with our lipid clinic is we work with a specialty pharmacy group and an expert in pre-authorization, and they've really got it down about uh, filling out the right documentation, you know, with all the information about your patient um, that meets the eligibility criteria for these drugs uh, that matches the FDA indications. And with proper documentation, uh, usually we can get these through. And this is why it takes a little practice sometimes to get the process down. And sometimes it's helpful if you have one point person who gets really familiar with this and it goes a lot more smoothly. But don't take no for an answer. Usually, even if it's first denied, uh, most cases uh, generally tend to get uh, approved, especially if your patient uh, meets the FDA indications. Now, one of the things we emphasize in the guidelines is a team-based approach to reduce ASCVD. We really need all hands on deck, and we need to involve primary care and nutrition and our exercise physiologists, social workers, pharmacists, as I mentioned, lipidologists, cardiologists, and more.
And when we're thinking about prevention, I like to think of it in the framework of the ABC approach that we uh, initially uh, adopted and piloted with the, the center I'm affiliated with, the Johns Hopkins Chickaroni Center for the Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease. Uh, in this uh, diagram, we've actually expanded the ABCDs uh, to include more things. Um, so for A, uh, we should be thinking about assessment of risk. So the intensity of therapy should maximize the absolute risk of the patient. And so for both primary and secondary prevention, we're actually making uh, risk-based decisions about the intensity of uh, pharmacological therapy that we're going to use. Now, aspirin is still recommended in secondary prevention, but it's used selectively in primary prevention for those at high vascular risk, but at low risk for bleeding. And sometimes a coronary artery calcium score may help you in some of the cases when someone's risk is a little bit uncertain. Now for B, it's important for managing a normal body mass index and controlling blood pressure less than 130 over 80. C is smoking cessation and managing cholesterol as we talked about during this program. A D for diabetes prevention uh, and also for diabetes treatment. We're in a new era too for diabetes drugs with SGL2 inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists also having meaningful cardiovascular outcome reduction. Also focusing on the healthy diet, as I mentioned, uh, sleep uh, in terms of dreams and uh, digital health, M health may help patients achieve their uh, goals. Now, E for exercise, we talked about the 150 minutes a week of moderate vigorous activity. And uh, one of the things we posed with the title of this session is, should EPA be one of the E's in the uh, ABCDE guideline? You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Medtelligence. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to ReachMD.com slash Medtelligence. Thank you for listening.